Hey, Jason, here we are back again with another episode of the Peace Lab podcast. And you are, we're sneaking this conversation in right before you are ready to hop on a plane. Do you want to tell our listeners where you're headed? I'm going down to Florida to Fort Myers and I'm going to be at the SENT conference. And the SENT conference is this great, it's a church planning conference. This is the second one. I was not able to go to the first one. And so I'm, this is one of those work trips where you're like, you know, this is like actually exciting and personally fulfilling. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, there's been so much focus, I feel like kind of on some congregations choosing to leave our denomination. But the thing that I think we don't talk about enough is that there have been a lot of new church plants also, peace church plants that have been developing recently. So I don't know, can you talk about some of the people who might be there and are a part of these conversations? I live here in Raleigh and uh, Mauricio Chinlo, he was one of the first people who helped me understand what being a Mennonite is apart from just the theology. And this is Mauricio's, you know, he's the church planning denominational minister. So this is his gathering. So just talking to him, knowing that I think the biggest thing is it's a very diverse group, ethnically, racially, and everything else. And I heard from folks who attended the, the last SENT conference that it really is like the most diverse conference that we have. And so I'm really excited to see that because, uh, you know, for me, as someone who didn't grow up in the Mennonite church, you know, I can sort of testify to the allure and the, you know, you, you have to do this for a reason. Like, you know, you don't just wake up and say, yeah, let me become Mennonite and let me let me go visit Elkhart, Indiana, just because it's, you know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's something really powerful there. And so I'm looking forward to being down there and talking to other, to other people who feel like this is a thing worth sharing. Right. The thing right. that other people want to find out and, and, and want to be a part of. So to me, that's, that's very energizing. And you're hoping to actually record some interviews for Peace Lab when you're down there, right? So people can hopefully in their feeds expect an episode in the next week or two featuring some of these voices. That's the hope, you know, and I think what I want to hear, you know, if we get a chance to do these, I want to hear some people's personal stories about why they're doing this. I think the other interesting thing for me, and especially as it pertains to my work in the Peace Lab podcast is, you know, really thinking about what role does the church have in peacemaking? You know, because especially in the, the highly politicized climate that we're in now in the United States, especially, you know, it seems like the broad pathway to peace is, is political. And it's, you know, if we can influence and control the people who have the political power, then that, that's going to equate to justice. Uh, and, and that's true in a lot of ways. I mean, I think that that's certainly part of our calling and we need to be in the public square. But what about church? You know, what, what about that, that unique organization or organism that, that Jesus came to establish and, and lived on through all these historical trends and ups and downs, what role does that have in being a peacemaker and, you know, in God's, God's mission of reconciliation and shalom? Is the church still a vehicle for that? And I think it is. I, don't, I can't necessarily articulate it as well as someone who's really you know, thinking about, okay, let's put a church together and, and start from scratch. So I want to hear what they have to say. Yeah. So I look forward to hearing those interviews too. And if you got to go to Florida, you got to go. I mean, that's just the way it is. So I guess that's yeah. true. Hardships. Hardships right, right. for you. And th there is some sadness uh, as, as I leave. And, and I wanted to get your take on this, Hannah. I think the, the big story that's, or one of the big stories that's been affecting a lot of us this week is uh, the death of MJ Sharp. And I know you have some connection with MJ, but I guess in your role as the editor of the Mennonite, and, and you've been talking to a lot of people and running a lot of stories, maybe you can talk a little bit about, about the impact of, of MJ's life uh, and now his tragic passing. Yeah. Well, for, for those listeners who may not be up to speed on this particular story, MJ was a UN worker, UN peace builder. He had formerly worked with Mennonite Central Committee in the Democratic Republic of Congo, but was on a fact-finding trip with the UN and was kidnapped along with another UN worker and four Congolese nationals and eventually was found um, killed 
And so that news came out just last week. And I think the ripple effects of this have been huge. And it's causing a lot of the Mennonites that I've been talking with to really reflect on what does the call to peacemaking look like for us now? You know, back when there was still a draft, in some ways, what it meant to be a pacifist was um, a little bit clearer. You did not sign up for war. You tried to find some alternative service. We don't have that same cultural pressure to sign up as peacemakers in quite the same way right now. So MJ's story is sort of a modern example of the cost of peace building, and that's really impacting a lot of people, and people well beyond the church. This has been a national story, and MJ's parents, John and Michelle, have done a lot of talking about MJ and what kind of led him to his this point, how his faith commitment shaped his interest in this work. And I think we're going to continue to see those ripple effects. One of the other big things is that I think this story is highlighting for many people this long history of violence that's been happening in the Congo, but that hasn't gotten much coverage yeah. in the United States. You know, some estimates would suggest anywhere from five to 10 million people, Congolese people have died over the course of the last five to 10 years. It's hard to est- get a really true estimate. So those are huge numbers. And, you know, our interest in mineral for our cell phones in the West also has some impact on what's happening there. So I think MJ's death is also elevating that conversation for people. So Sarah Thompson, who's the director of the Christian Peacemaker Teams organization, who was also a classmate of MJ's, we were all at Bethany together, you know, she's done a lot of reflecting on that. What is our call now as people who are called to be peacemakers to keep engaging with this story in a way that honors MJ, but also honors all those other lives that have been lost too. So it's it's a tragic story. Yeah, I think MJ is also inspiring a lot of people too. Absolutely. I, I, I do appreciate that, you know, thinking about his, his example and, and how he lived out his peacemaking is, is courageous, um, but but also innovative. And, and as you said, I think we're at a time we've got this future church summit coming up at convention and a lot of things are just in flux, but thinking about what, what is our, what is our peace witness? You know, why, how are we engaging in a global world where you do have these things going on, these sort of long-term terrible conflicts, but they're just not in the news or they're not on our consciousness. How do we engage in those? And, and MJ's example in his life, it could be a guiding light to a lot of people to say, well, no, this is what peacemaking is. It's not just saying, well, as long as I don't hear about it, as long as it doesn't affect me, I don't have to engage in it, but really say, no, I, I want to go out to those places where there is conflict and, and things are disrupted. And I want to see what, you know, what it means to, to work for Shalom there. Uh, that's a heavy, inspiring example. It is. And, you know, delegates, Mennonite delegates two years ago passed a resolution about what it means to be the church in a society that's, I think the phrase was, in the midst of endless war. Right. And that's what it feels like. You know, there have been these long-term, just ongoing conflicts. It's not like there have been breaks between these conflicts in the way that maybe there used to be. And I think that resolution sort of got, it didn't get as much attention as some others that were passed at that assembly, because there were, I think, seven resolutions passed in that one time. But I wonder really if we've thought enough about what that means for us and how we're shaped by being a part of this particular country that's always at war right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that resolution is going to continue to have ripple impact as we, it's one of those things I think where some, sometimes a resolution comes out or a statement can you know, have an initial first pop and then, then it disappears. I think this might be the opposite because you're right. I think we're all starting to see our context in a different way. And maybe we start to look back at that and say, oh yeah, maybe there's a bit of a prophetic word there that we need to be thinking about now. And especially as, as Anabaptists, you know, what's our, what's our third way? How are we differentiated from, from this endless world culture? But, but I guess the, the sort of the 21st century twist on it is, 
how are we different, but then also how are we involved at the same time? Yeah, yes. and how are we working for change? So uh, th- that's a lot to re- to reflect on, and I think this just goes to your point. Uh, you know, MJ's example and his life uh, and his and his courage can spark so much good stuff and good conversation and and hopefully good action as well. Well, there's a lot going on in the world for sure. But Jason, I hope you have a good, safe trip and we'll uh, reconnect in a few weeks for the next next episode of Peace Lab. So I'm here with Julia Schmidt and we're going to be talking a little bit about some work she's doing to try to create an immigrant resource network in Goshen, Indiana. But Julia, tell us a little bit about yourself before we really dig in. Yeah, I am a current student at Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary in Elkhart. Um, although I call Goshen my home, and I grew up originally in Kansas, graduated high school in Bern, Indiana, and then went to Eastern Mennonite University for my undergrad. Okay, so you've been to lots of different communities. Talk me through a little bit the process of that brought you to the place of doing this work. How did you get inspired to start thinking about immigration justice? Well, I guess originally I did an internship um, in college um, through the Ministry Inquiry Program, where I was at San Antonio, in San Antonio. Um, I was half-time at San Antonio Mennonite Church and half-time at Raices, the immigration law firm there. So that was some of my introduction to immigration work. But then ended up at seminary, and then this summer I participated in MCC's Borderlands Learning Tour. Did that, and then the Migrant Trail, which is a 75-mile fully supported walk through the desert um, from the border of Arizona to Tucson. Um, that walk in a week with about 70 other walkers kind of to bear witness to the deaths that occur in the desert. Yeah, and try to be a voice of hope also. Um, It's kind of like a low-grade protest in some ways as we have our banners and our walking and, yeah, by experiencing the the hot sun and not at all getting a taste of what migrants actually go through because we have water every mile and a half and are walking on main roads, which they can't, but yes see in part the journey that they go through, bear witness to it. Um, So that was really, yeah, really powerful. And I think as I started learning more about the work on the border and more about immigration work in general, just thinking of ways how I can get involved, especially knowing that Goshen, where I live, is 30% Latino. And and that's something people may not realize, you know, that Goshen, Indiana has, um, is becoming a much more diverse place that I think the Goshen public school system is now 50% Latino, actually. This is a place where immigration justice matters a lot, where people are worried about these issues. It does. And yeah, and I think I started like a year ago, I, um, I interned at Goshen College at their Center for Intercultural and International Education and worked under Hiberto Perez and Rocio Diaz and got kind of got introduced to the Latino community in Goshen. And that really opened my eyes. So yeah, to have that, to like have that introduction, to meet some of the people, a lot of my neighbors, <laughs> and then be able to go in to learn more about immigration issues and really, that, yeah, being on the border and hear about how the wall affects people and how this journey affects people. Um, yeah, it really made me like, I need to do something. And um, coming back, coming back, I thought about like how to connect agencies and connect people and especially I thought a lot about how do we welcome people and show like hospitality because people have been through so much and like especially on this this journey and this are my learning my learning tour learned a lot about how to view people as as heroes not just as victims and yeah and so have so much strength and gifts and just like that like I've started to witness as I've develop these relationships in Goshen like these are things that need to come out and so how do we make sure that they're allowed to like 
use their gifts they bring and how can we accept those gifts here? Sure. And so why this model of a resource center? Talk a little bit about what that would look like or do. Yeah. So the resource center, um, um, Indianapolis has a really great model. And so I visited with the um, executive director there and mainly uses this program called the Natural Helpers Program, which trains, trains volunteers to be able to walk with people. But the trained volunteers themselves are people, long-term immigrants in the community. So the people who have already been through this process of coming to the U.S., finding a job, learning the language. And so already have some of the skills to help other people, but then be able to train them. I know Indianapolis uses like a 28-hour mandatory training that they go through to kind of learn about all the different social services agencies in the area. And so then, and also are trained how you can work with, you know, clients who might come with a lot of trauma to not become like their, their counselor. Like that's, that's not healthy either. But how to work with clients to be able to get them the resources they need. How does I imagine it is that we'll have a physical office space that people can, might not necessarily come. They can come or we can um, definitely help people over the phone or email to connect them with a long-term volunteer who's from their place of origin or speak or their, most definitely speaks their, their language um, mm-hmm. can kind of be their own support system and walk through um, some of these agencies to get them the help they need. So it's not necessarily a place that is actually providing all of these services, but sort of a hub that's directing people to places that they might need to get connected to. Yeah. Although um, kind of the process we're in right now is we're working on surveys to get out to the community. So we want to make sure we're actually meeting the needs. And I think what we might discover is like, although I don't imagine doing direct resources, it could turn out that our surveys turn out that there is a very crucial missing link here and maybe focusing on that and realizing we have to do some kind of direct resource. So who are the different partners that you're pulling into this process so far to think about creating this network? Yeah, so I've been able to do a lot of my research and work through my internship with Mennonite Central Committee, Great Lakes. Um, And so that's been really good to think and that's given me a lot of connections in the community, such as they're part of the Michiana Immigration Coalition, which is a group of mostly nonprofit lawyers, immigration lawyers. Um, so that's been very helpful, especially as it's a lot of these law firms that see a lot of the needs that exist. And and legal services is one of the biggest resources that people do need connections to, especially right now. And so like the National Immigrant Justice Center is a nonprofit immigration law firm in downtown Goshen. And so I've been working with their lawyer and paralegal to talk, and especially as I've been making presentations in churches, um, I often will bring along them to help give some of the legal background to immigration. It's very helpful. But I've also been in conversations with Ming Goshen College and the Center for Intercultural and International Education, who has a lot of the connections with, I mean, their students, but also within the community, which is really helpful. Um, I've started to meet with parent-teacher liaisons in school, local school systems in both Goshen and Elkhart because they're also some of the people who kind of have a lot of the direct contact with the people that most need resources. And as I, especially the parent-teacher liaisons, as I've talked to them, they all really want to be trained as national helpers because they're already doing a lot of this work and would like to know better the resources that are available. Just because of the needs that are presented with them, they're being asked to put this up. Well, so that kind of brings me to this question of thinking about 
the urgency of this work, I think there is this sense that since the election, people are more fearful, that there are worries about some of the immigration reforms being rolled back, some of these freedoms that were given, even though, but this is also, to put it in context, a very long-term conversation in the United States. I think it's true that President Barack Obama actually deported more people during his time in office than any other president before him all put together. So this is, in the last 10 years, one of the biggest things we've been dealing with as a country. How does that sense of urgency or these needs, how does that shape your work? I mean, so my learning tour, you know, was this summer and I mean, of Indianapolis long before. And in some ways, I think people are more willing to show up to events right now. It's amazing the response um, of churches in the Goshen Elkhart area is that um, anytime I've hosted a meeting or other groups have hosted meetings, people are showing up because I think they see the urgency in ways that they didn't. So yeah, so I think that, I don't know, it's, it's good and bad at the same time, right? Right. Although there also is, there is more of an emergency response. And so like the other thing that I've been working on a lot recently is um, working on the sanctuary movement of churches. So I'm helping lead a coalition of the Elkhart Goshen Sanctuary Coalition. And so, yeah, as I see the Immigrant Resource Center kind of long-term and kind of going about that process slowly, because if we're starting like a nonprofit, we want all the information, we want the data, um, while then the sanctuary movement is really trying to go as fast as it can to get set up um, to respond to the urgent needs now. Right. And so for people who aren't familiar with that movement, say a little bit about what it means to be a sanctuary congregation. So the sanctuary movement in the U.S. started back in the 80s um, when there was refugees coming from um, Central America, especially El Salvador and Honduras, and they were fleeing the violence and civil wars there and coming to the U.S. But the U.S. was refusing to recognize their status as refugees and asylums, asylees and deporting them back where they are often then killed. And so the church stepped up in the U.S. and said that this is not okay um, and started taking people into their churches to host them there while calling on the government to legally recognize these cases. And so I know um, my church, Southside Fellowship in Elkhart, joined this movement in the 80s and hosted a couple families, at least for, I forget how long, I think it was several months to a year. And so this movement then... Um, was revived in 2007 under the New Sanctuary Movement, and where instead of looking at refugees and asylum cases, is looking at realizing that there's deportations happening of long-term community members who weren't criminals, who had their families here. And, and as you mentioned, under Obama, there have been more deportations than any other presidency in history. And yeah, and the, many of these cases are people who have been living here for 10, 20, 30 years their families are all here. They have very little connection back in their home countries and their livelihood is here. And they're not criminals. They get stopped for a minor traffic violation and end up in deportation. So in this way, a church who's declared sanctuary, take this person working through a lawyer into the church, um, have a public press conference about the case, have um, be very public of um, what they're doing and kind of raise awareness and kind of um, do a whole media campaign, but yet so, and then keeping them 24 hours a day in the church building and while the lawyer works on the case until the lawyer is able to win their case and keep um, them in, in the U.S. Sure. And so, and it is legal um, under a memo from the Immigration Customs Enforcement that they have said they will not make arrests in churches, churches, schools, or hospitals. And so I think it's just the church showing that, like, the church is going to be the church no matter what the laws are. And if there's unjust laws, 
that the church is there to show hospitality to the stranger. Yeah, and love the neighbor and despite what the unjust laws are in the country. Sure. And for those people who are sort of interested in podcasts, I don't know if you actually listened to this, but there was an episode of Code Switch, the podcast Code Switch, that actually interviewed Jeanette Vizquera, I think, who is currently taking part in this sanctuary movement in Denver, who is living in a church permanently until there can be some resolution to her case. And it was a wonderful interview with her where she really talks about the agency and the witness of those who seek sanctuary and actually the ways they're kind of playing an instrumental role in raising the awareness about immigration and justice in the country. So I would invite people to listen to that. And even also, you know, in the Mennonite church, immigration justice is a big issue. We have rapidly growing Latino congregations. And I think it was two years ago, Pastor Max Viatoro, one of our pastors in Central Plains Mennonite Conference was deported despite widespread kind of social media campaigns and efforts to advocate on his behalf. So this is something that touches us here in the church, the Mennonite church for sure. Have you, these efforts that you've been engaged in, have they been ecumenical? Um, Or is it drawing mostly Mennonites? It's been easiest, as my connections are with Mennonites, to start kind of the Mennonite church. But we we really are are growing. Um, Within the sanctuary movement, our coalition, the Universalist Unitarian Fellowship of Elkhart, has declared itself sanctuary. And we've been in conversation with United Methodists, with Lutherans, the Catholics, because the Catholic parishes have some of the largest Latino populations. So have been in conversation with them and yeah, working together. So it has been ecumenical. And I think that's one really exciting part of this movement. And, and as I've done like the Immigrant Resource Center, I'm not doing that exclusively religious. Although for me, it comes from religious reasons, engaging more community members. And yeah, and I feel like that has reached um, a lot of different people, including like several local Latino youth in the local high school, which has been really exciting to just see how all sorts of different people are engaging today. I wonder if you could say a little bit more, you sort of hinted at this just now, but how does this work grow out of your faith commitments and your sense of what it means to be a Mennonite or a Christian? Yeah, when I did the Borderlands Learning Tour, I actually did it as an independent study um, on immigration in the Bible. And kind of, yeah, and especially as I've been preaching in churches lately been and looking and hearing different speakers just realizing that this call for immigrant justice is everywhere i recently this past week did a a bible study on the commandment on sabbath and i guess i went before when i hadn't read it but sabbath also calls that it's not just for the people um for god's people but also for you know the slaves and the animals but also mentions the Um, immigrants, the foreigner residing in the lands. And just all through the Old Testament, so many of the laws talk about showing hospitality to the stranger in the lands. And then as I think about Jesus and the call centrality of Jesus in my Christian faith, um, just his openness to love everyone. And it didn't matter the cultural barriers or social barriers that might exist, um, but just this deep love and acceptance of everyone and so, yeah, for me, that's, that's what it is. And to do this work is so much of, ca- of calling of what it means to be Christian. Also recognizing that as Christians, we are also the foreigners in the land, that we are called not to pledge our allegiance, you know, to this, to a certain country or land, realizing that our allegiance is to God and to God's kingdom. There's been so much work done in our churches over the last few years to look at kind of the biblical narrative about migration. And and so I know we could like talk for a long time about that. But the last question that I often ask people to reflect on 
is because of the name of this podcast. This podcast is called The Peace Lab. And it's interesting to think about the ways that Anabaptist and Mennonite ideas about what peacemaking is have kind of evolved. So when you think about that word peace, what does that mean to you and how does it fit with this work? I recently um, heard Danny Carroll speak. So Danny Carroll is the author of the book Christians at the Border, which looks at the biblical basis on immigration. And he talked about how he's often seen a difference between like activism and the cross and like a separation between those two. Um, a lot of his activist friends don't necessarily talk about the work of Jesus. And I think I've seen that as I've studied peace through Mennonite institutions. But sometimes, yeah, it just seems that peace can be secular um, and the peace studies programs can be very secular. Well, I think what's been happening at AMBS and um, as I listen to him speak is that these are the same thing. And the reason we do peace work is because of our faith. And it's not just something we do, but something we are and it's so essential. And that like activism and Jesus's life and death and resurrection cannot be separate from one another. I am an activist and I work for peace because I'm a Christian. I think peace work we do as Mennonites is different from secular peace work because we have this idea of love and reconciliation um, and love of enemies that doesn't actually make sense in a normal world, um, but it's a call that we have and it's, it's who we are. That peace is, yeah, for me, is it's just this whole wholeness. I'm in a class called God Shalom. We talk about the wholeness of peace. It's not just the absence of violence, um, but it's inclusion of everyone and also realizing this really messy, hard work. Yes. And it's really hard, um, especially when we talk about loving our enemies and what that means. It's really hard, but I believe it's the work that God calls us to do every day. Um, and it, That's good. So if people are listening in Goshen and Elkhart, how can they get engaged with this work you're doing? Well, hopefully they've um, heard that the, the, their pastors have come to meetings about <laughs> sanctuary. Um, and if they haven't, hint, hint, I guess, right? Like, get you yeah. somewhere. We've tried really hard to, like, get as many people involved as we can, but um, also knowing communication is hard. But, yeah, people want to get in contact with me. I, I, I love talking to people about this work and helping people think ways of getting involved. Um, so, so Sanctuary, we do have a Facebook page set up, um, and my email address is there if people want to contact me. Great. Well, thanks so much for sitting down and talking with me this afternoon for me, morning for you, I guess. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Hannah. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peace Lab podcast. If you want to catch up on past episodes of the podcast, you can find us at www.themennonite.org or pjsn.org. We're also available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and iTunes, so you can subscribe to our show and never miss an episode. Our next episode, featuring interviews from the Scent Church Planting Gathering, will drop on April 24th. Until next time, I'm Hannah Heinziker. Thanks for joining me today. Bye.